If you turn to Colossians 3, I originally intended to get through verse 17. Uh, As we say, that's not going to happen. Uh, So we're going to take down to verse 14 today. And a study that I've entitled, Red Carpet Ready. And would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to bless us through the study of his word. Lord, we again are so grateful for all you are doing in this church. And Lord, I want to thank you for the faithfulness of your people to hear your voice and to give. Lord, uh, in some cases, uh, very sacrificially. And in all cases, generously, Lord, to the work of the ministry. And through that, all of these things are possible. And so, Lord, we thank you for that faithfulness. Pray that you would continue to bless us as a church. Lord, continue to give us vision for what you have for us for the future. And pray now as we turn our attention to your wonderful word, that bread of life. Lord, would you impart to us its truth as we study. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive now and enrich us today as we seek to know you better. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Verse 12 here in Colossians 3. And therefore, as the elect of God, and I want to remind you that now as we turn our attention to kind of these internal exhortations, if you will, to a holy life, that the Apostle Paul is now reminding us, look, we have to take out the trash. We have to... do those things that are necessary to get rid of what should not be in our lives as believers. That's part of the process, in other words. There there are things absolutely before we met the Lord that need to go in the dumpster and they need to stay there, amen? We don't go diving back in there and say, well, I threw that away. We probably all have stories of our past that we could say we tossed something and we went back and fetched it out. Please don't go back in the dumpster. So we have to put off the old in that sense. We're now going to shift gears to figure out what it is that we need to put on. We need to be red carpet ready. And think of it this way. And perhaps you've never, you can do a little Google search and find out these things. But uh, Connie shared with the lady some months ago uh, about the costs of uh, what it takes for some of these stars, these Hollywood personalities to get ready for the Oscars. Uh, all of those types of you know award ceremonies, but some of those that are engaged in in the business of acting spend upwards of ten million dollars getting ready for two and a half to three hours at the Oscars. Dresses, all kinds of makeup, hair, jewelry, all the things that they wear. They spend that kind of time and talent and treasure to get ready for a couple of hours of basically nonsense. Don't you think we ought to be getting ready for the arrival of our bridegroom from heaven? Amen? And pouring our time and our talent and our treasure into being ready for when he gets here? We need to be red carpet ready. And therefore, as the elect of God, and you'll see these things that we ought to be putting on, and beloved, do you think of yourself? Imagine this. The creator of heaven and earth loves you. You are beloved. When he sees you, he says, that's my beloved. Not, oh, here comes Jeff again. Jeff, 
I love you. We are beloved of God. He's not mad at you. He doesn't just kind of accept you. God loves you with an everlasting love. And that love has no boundaries. So much so that he spent the most expensive treasure in the universe on telling you exactly how much he loves you. He offered up his only begotten son. You are beloved of God. In other words, Jesus got down on one knee and he said, I love you, will you marry me? And he did it with his own life. He said, here's my promise to you. You're loved. Ought we not be getting ready for the wedding? It's coming, isn't it? The marriage supper of the Lamb awaits us. One day the bridegroom is stepping out of time and right into our day. And he's going to say, it's time to come home. It's time for the wedding. And therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Start to link these things together. And kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the super glue of perfection, the bond of perfection. And so the Lord begins to show us our grace garments. And the first one, he, he begins to say, look, we've been chosen of God. Jesus got on that one knee and he said, I want you. Out of all the people in the universe, and it's so important for us to personalize our relationship with Jesus. Were you the only one on the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus himself would have gotten on one knee and offered up his life in your place to say, I want you. You are chosen by God. And so many people look at this word elect, which simply means chosen of God. And the church has been arguing over its direct meaning for centuries, so we'll not do that this morning. But when he says elect, the doctrine of election is essential to us understanding that God from time past, we are the chosen of God before the foundation of the world. So God has selected you in that sense. But in order for us to really see it, he, he just simply says to you, he says to me, that as we've put off of the old and we put on the new, that the Lord sees all of those things. And he does not select us because we did anything. He selects us because he gave us the gift of faith, wherein we are able to say yes to his offer and his proposal, which is I love you and I want you. God's chosen you. He did not have to choose you, and yet he has. As a believer, he says, I want you. 
So the first thing that we're to put on is that understanding that we've been chosen by God. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says what it says. For we are saved through that faith. And that's not of me. That's not of us. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. We can't boast about it. And in that sense, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared before you were ever born. Jesus said, I want you. So we're chosen by God. A second thing, he set us apart for his purposes. Notice the word holy there. It's what holy actually means. People complicate it. But holy means to be set apart, and in this case, set apart by God and for God. And so when he says we are to put on holiness, that means because we've been set apart, because we've been chosen by God, because we are his children, we should actually try and be like him as we get ready. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done a wedding to where the bride has one idea and the groom has another idea of what they should wear. Um, I've had those. It's a pretty contentious thing. And, and they're arguing back, and well, I want it to be blue. No, I want it to be green. Well, I want it to be red. No, I want it to be purple. I don't want these kind of flowers. No, well, I want those kind of flowers. And they go back and forth. They can't choose a set of guidelines whereby they're going to prepare the wedding. Until so one's on one page and one is on the other page. There's only one page from God's perspective. It is holiness unto the Lord. We are to be like Jesus. And whatever he says we ought to be, that's what we're supposed to be. And so in that sense, this grace garment, this thing that we put on, is his holiness. And it sets us apart from the world. And in that sense, we look different, we talk different, we act different than the world acts. We're supposed to stand out in a very wonderful way. People should be able to look at your life and my life and see there's something substantively different from the way you live your life than people who don't know Jesus. That's holiness. That's that outworking of God's character that's in you. It'd be absolutely tragic. Think about it. Can you imagine the wedding goes on and right at the ceremony, the bridegroom runs off with the maid of honor? That'd be horrible. Be awful. No, we're married to the Lord. And we need to be faithful to the Lord. And when the time comes, we know he's going to be faithful to us. We need to be faithful to him. A third thing. Probably many of you in here struggle just being loved. Probably some of you in here have not had love modeled for you in your life. But I can tell you this. God loves you. God loves me. God loves us. And it's completely unconditional. He's not looking at your performance and say, well, I love those who love me. He loves us when we don't love him. God loves us. That is an amazement to me. Because I know me, you know you. Amen? Probably most of us in here, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but you probably wouldn't love you. 
Out of all the people on this earth, you probably wouldn't choose yourself. Because you know all those little tidbits and pieces that are in there. And if you could separate you and make someone else that you could inhabit, you probably wouldn't choose yourself. But the Lord loves you. So we're supposed to put on love like He loves. The same quality, the same characteristics, the same way that He has loved us, we are supposed to love others. So much so that Jesus said that's actually how the world will know that we're His disciples. By the way we love. Especially other brothers and sisters. God loves us. The fourth thing. Also, mind-boggling, staggeringly, God has forgiven us. Can I tell you it's safe to say that a vast majority of the world believes in forgiveness only when it's conditional? I will forgive you if is the basic way that most people understand forgiveness. If you do this, if you do that, if you say this, if you rectify the situation, if you allow these things to happen that show me that you really want my forgiveness, then I will forgive you. Maybe. Can I tell you that is not God's idea of forgiveness? God forgives you unconditionally based on the merits of his only begotten son, not on your worthiness. That's why it is an anathema to God for Christians to be unforgiving. And that's why unforgiving Christians are so miserable in their unforgiveness. Because you have a new nature in Christ. Behold, all things are becoming new. The old things are passing away. One of those old things that's passing away is your old unforgiving attitude. And if you try and hang on to unforgiveness, you'll be miserable as a Christian. Because it's completely against the new character that you have in Christ. God has forgiven us. And he's done it for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake really alone. We've already seen that he's forgiven all of our trespasses. It's complete. It's final. It's total. It doesn't require any effort on your part. God unconditionally forgives you simply because you have asked. Is that not staggering to you? Hallelujah. I don't know if you find you. I do. Because I know me. I could mess up God's forgiveness like that. If it was on me to earn it, I'm not getting it. I'd be prideful. I'd be arrogant. I'd go, well, of course you have to forgive me because I'm better now. Isn't that the way a lot of us think of forgiveness? And so part of these grace clothes, these garments, this being red carpet ready to go to meet our bridegroom in the air when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ have been raised and we who are alive and remain meet him in the air, he wants us to look like we're ready for heaven. We need to be forgivers. And not partial forgivers. Not those who say, well, I'm holding 
uh, you know, onto these things. Have you ever wondered why they're in 1 Corinthians 13? One of the things that we're not supposed to do is keep records of wrongs. Do you know why that is? Because you take the stupid lists out and you read them over. Remember when, and you just go down, yeah, back in 1904. <laughs> now, if that happens to be a date in your life, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hopefully, there's nobody in here who's 113 years old, but no, 103. You, you see, we would do that. It's just like, well, I forgive you, but oh man, you just wait. Be a forgiver. If you haven't read it recently, read Matthew chapter 18. Notice what it says. And if you do not forgive your brother who sins against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You know why he says that? Because forgiveness is so necessary in our own lives, it is mandatory towards others. Because without it, no one sees heaven. So be a forgiver. And I want to run through these remaining things this morning as we put on these additional graces. And they're really tied to these four basic topics that we've already seen. So we are to think of ourselves as chosen, selected, and loved by God. We are set apart for God. We are loved by Him, and we are forgiven. And because of that, put on tender mercies. Clothe yourself in tender mercies. Now look at this like you're in the bride's room. Now I can tell you something, having done a lot of weddings, when the bridegroom and the wedding party goes into the bride's room, they could be in there for days. And they're doing all the little tiny minutia. And every once in a while you'll have a bride, or usually it's the mother of the bride, or somebody representing the bridal party. She's not coming out. And I'm going, what? The, we got to start the wedding. She's not coming out. And then you talk to the bride. I can't go out like this. I'm missing a sequin. It's one of 19,000 of them on the dress. And it's behind her arm. But she knows it's missing. And she doesn't feel ready to meet her groom. Can you imagine if the church took that much time and effort and energy and attention to detail getting ready to meet our groom who's coming? So these are details. Tender mercies. You see, some of us are conditionally merciful as well. And instead of just being merciful, which means you don't give that person what they have earned or deserve. It's really the opposite, if you want to look at it, from grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. It's an easy way to understand the differences. You're supposed to be tender while you're being merciful. Some of us are merciful like this. Okay, I forgive you, but I'm not going to spank you right now, but just wait. And if you ever blow it again, 
You see, our mercy can even be conditional. And so God tells us, be tender-hearted while being merciful. In other words, your heart should be so soft towards the other person that the only thing you can do is be merciful. Because you would put yourself in their place and go, oh, dear Lord, how I need to not get what I have earned. Put on tender mercy. Put on kindness. Can I tell you that being right is not necessarily being kind? That you can be perfectly correct, have all the facts right, and you can still be very unkind while being right. And God says to us, put on kindness. In everything. In how you relate to people, what you say, how you say it. What you do and how you do it. Do it with kindness. And kindness, it comes from inside of us. Ephesians 4 tells us that we are to be kind one to another. Why is that? Because again, kindness is Jesus being worked out of us. Kindness is something that we put on that then shows in the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we dress. It is a grace garment. It's clothing that has clothed us. No greater picture of that than in 2 Samuel 9 and David's desire to show the kindness of God to King Saul's family. How would he do that? He, he chose this young man, Jonathan's son, a poor cripple, Meshibosheth. And, and as, he, as he chooses, he could have ended this young man's life. But instead he's kind, he's merciful to him. There was no benefit to David whatsoever. But there was great benefit to Saul and his family. And so we do what we do for the benefit of others. That's kindness. It's love. It's grace working out of us. It just says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love on you even when maybe I don't feel like it. And that's not being disingenuous. That's being like Jesus. I'm sure Jesus did not enjoy the flogging he took in Pilate's court. But I know this. In it, he showed great kindness towards you and me. Because he didn't have to take that beating. But he did it in love. Kindness being worked out. How about humility or humbleness of mind? In our world, in Paul's world, people don't really think about humility as something that really anybody wants. We're taught to be proud. We're taught to be boastful. In some cases, to be angry. And yet we're to have humility. And humility in our thinking. And it's not thinking poorly of your own self. It's having the proper estimation of others in view so that you honor them first before you honor yourself. And you imagine how that would transform the, the, the tenor of our political uh, things that are going on right now. Can you imagine if people truly took on a humble mind when talking to one another and actually engaged to listen than to hear what someone else has to say? And treated them with respect and dignity and honor, even if you disagree with them. It's one of the things that drives me so nuts right now. I don't want to hear what these people have to say simply because all they do is yell at each other. Why don't you have a conversation and let us be part of it? 
You see, humility says there's something valuable in that person with whom even I disagree. That's humility of mind. No greater picture of that than Jesus, amen? He put off the glories of heaven to come here. That's humility. In other words, he went from heaven to earth. He got dirty in that sense. Not that he sinned, but he came to this wretched rock to be able to identify with us. That's humility. Because he could have stayed in heaven. But he came to earth. We're to have that type of love for other people and be others-centric in that sense. And we're to put on meekness. And notice these things all linked together. And can I tell you, meekness is not weakness. Many people think that meekness is weakness, and it's not weakness at all. It is power completely under control and restraint. And so when you think of meekness, there's a difference between a gentle trade wind in Hawaii and a hurricane, amen? But are they not both wind? One is destructive, why? Because it's completely out of control. It is unrestrained wind. And yet that breeze that blows across your lanai as you're sitting there having your cup of coffee, that's a whole different matter. You see, when the wind is restrained, it's beautiful. When it's unbridled, it's destructive. Meekness is the restraint of power. You ever get on a horse, it may be broken, but if you do something it doesn't like, that power becomes unrestrained in those hindquarters, you're going to see dirt coming up really fast. You see, you go from restrained power, unrestrained power. Meekness is restrained power. Now, how about long-suffering? We don't like to suffer long, do we? You can say, no, I don't like to suffer long. Most of us don't. It's not our category of things. You know, I just want to be long-suffering today. And yet it is so like Jesus. Can you imagine that Jesus has actually so suffered long with the entire world that there's yet still grace available to mankind? I would have given like 12 minutes of grace to the world. It's like, okay, anybody wants to get saved, get saved now. I got things to do. Eternity to run. I can see some of you have the same problem. We're impatient. We're not patient. And yet he says to be long-suffering. It literally means to have a long temper. That's a literal rendering of those Greek words. To be long-tempered. In other words, you have a right to be upset about sin. You have a right to be upset about a situation. But you choose to be loving instead and you suffer long. And you keep suffering long, and then you suffer a little while longer, and then once you get done doing that, you do some more suffering, and you do it for a long time. That's the way God's treated you and me, us. Amen? Hasn't God suffered long with you? Okay, what we want to do right now is all the perfect people get up. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. There's not one of us in here who doesn't need God's long-suffering with us. There's something in your life. You, you give God an itchy spot. It's like, ah, oh, Jeff. 
be long-suffering. Add to that forbearance. You, You see, when you owe the bank money, there's something the bank can do for you. They can issue you a forbearance. And that forbearance doesn't cancel the debt. It says we choose not to collect right now. The debt still do. It still needs to be taken care of. But because you've been given a forbearance, the bank says, we'll just take and put that interest on the back end of the loan, and we're going to keep going with you however long that is. Can you imagine if all Christians were forbearing with one another? Said, man, I'm not going to, yeah, there's something that's wrong, but I'm not collecting on it. I'm going to treat it as if it's not even due right now. I'm going to put it on the backside of heaven, and I'm going to trust God to deal with it. That's being forbearing. Forgiving. As I said, nothing, nothing, nothing marks the body of Christ like being forgivers. We have to forgive. We have been forgiven. It is a mandate to us. Scripture is so clear on this. And as I said, read that passage in Matthew 18. Read Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And if you find your brother in a fault, it says there, You who are spiritual, you who claim to know the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord and want to be like Jesus, you who are spiritual, you restore such a one. The such a one is the one who's found in a fault, a trespass, something that's wrong. You who are spiritual, you restore that person in the spirit of, oops, that word again, meekness. Power under control, restraint. You restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted in the same way. And here's a paraphrase to that, because y'all got issues. Amen? Amen. We all got issues. We got things that need to be forgiven. You're going to mess up. You're going to say the wrong thing. I had one of those yesterday. Out of nowhere, a little bit of my temper got out. And I still got a little of that every once in a while. And praise God, it's a whole bunch more restrained than it used to be. In Jesus' name, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Glory. Amen? Every once in a while. And I'm not proud of it, nor am I taking any credit for anything other than God is good. And he's like, Jeff, you're an idiot. I know, Lord, I've been one for a long time. And so what do I need? I need to ask for forgiveness. Be a quick forgiver. You've got to keep short accounts. That's why love keeps no record of wrong. Because if you drag around a list, you know what you're going to do with the list? There it is right there. Number 7,214. On March 12, 1983, you said this. Love and let go. That's my word to you. Love and let go. You leave them in God's hands and you do your part, which is to forgive. God will bless you for it. And then finally, as we close, put on love. There's a reason that 1 John 4 says what it says. God is love. And to wrap this up, to put it all together, now imagine all these things are like all the pieces of the outfit. 
to be red carpet ready, you kind of need to hang the earrings on there of kindness. And maybe you've got a, a, a necklace of, of meekness. And perhaps you've got a, a blouse that's, you know, that's your, that's your forbearance. And you're wearing all the rest of these things underneath. And then at the end, before you get ready to come out for the groom to see you at that wedding, the gown goes on. And it's love. It's just radiant, shining, beautiful, glued together love. Now you're ready. You dress in these things. This will transform your life. Family of God, this will transform your life. If you walk in tender mercies every day, if you walk in kindness and humility and meekness, and you will suffer long and you'll forbear and you'll forgive and you clothe yourself in love, you will absolutely, absolutely experience the love of God everywhere you go. You'll be ready. Amen? Would you stand and let's close our time. As Kevin and the team comes back out, maybe some of you are here today and, and you don't know that love. And you're thinking to yourself, I, I want that kind of love in my life. And I want to be able to forgive. But right now I can't. And you don't know the Lord Jesus. And that's really at the heart of the issue. You see, these things are impossible without knowing him. They're really the opposite of who we are without Jesus. If we don't have Christ, we, it's, it's nearly impossible to be tender and merciful. Very difficult. And so if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes... I simply want to ask a question. If you're here today and you want to have these things active in your life and you've never received Christ and you'd like to know the Lord right now, right here in this place, we're not going to have you go anywhere. We're simply going to ask you to lift your hand up and let me see it. And we're going to pray with you right where you're at. If you'd like to receive Christ and know these things in a personal way, just simply put your hand up in the air and we're going to pray. I see that hand in the back. I see those hands in the back. I see all the hands. There's hands up all over the sanctuary. Oh, praise the Lord. Just keep your hand up for a moment longer. Anyone else? We're not going to have you go anywhere. Any more hands? See that hand as well. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. See that hand. The Lord is so good to us. Those of you that have raised your hands, if you just put your hands down now for a moment, and body of Christ, would you, with them, quietly, silently, really, as they pray out loud these words, would you pray with them as they now receive the greatest gift that they'll ever get, and that's you, Jesus. Those that have raised your hands, just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to come into my life and to free me from that sin. I'm asking you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to wash me 
and to make me new. I'm asking you to give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray right now that you would be my Lord, my Master. I offer my life to you. I promise to serve you. I thank you for writing my name in the Lamb's book of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Now, for those of you that raised your hands, just because we want you to know and have all your questions answered, we have a prayer team that's available. I would really encourage you over in the left-hand corner there, there are Bibles and study notes and guides and all kinds of things to just help you. And if that would be a blessing to you, please go. Very important because Scripture says that if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. It's important to tell someone about that decision that you've made. So please do that before you leave today. We have a new believers class. We'd love to have you get engaged in that. But welcome to the family of God. Amen. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for salvation that has come to your house today again. Lord, we want to ask that you would put your heavenly angels around these that have received you today and that you would protect them and bless them. Do not let the enemy rip them off of the joy of following Jesus. We thank you for being able to be here with them and we join in with the angels in heaven who are shouting hallelujah. And praise the Lord. And so as we leave this place and have a few new brothers and sisters going with us, Lord, we rejoice in the glory of our God who is able and mighty to save. Make us red carpet ready. Lord, help us to put on all these things, that tender mercy and kindness and gentleness, that forbearance and forgiveness. Lord, we'll be cloaked in love, ready for when you come get your church. We ask these things in the wonderful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. God bless you.